Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that pushes the parameters in discussing motoring and transport. I'm David Brown and in this program we have news stories including the final fling for the Nissan GTR, Chrysler brand bids farewell to Australia, the UK to mandate EV charges in new buildings and Harley-Davidson takes a shot at pushbike purists. With the passing of a significant character from the Australian muscle car era, we reflect on the life and times of that period with motoring broadcaster and author John Smales. And we discuss two subjects with motoring journalist Paul Morell, the Volkswagen Tiguan and some more personal reflections of the Nissan GTR. There's always more information at drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on Spotify or iTunes. And there's our Facebook page, Overdrive City Driven Media. But for the moment, let's start this program with the news. The last of the current generation of Nissan's giant-killing GTR sports car has been launched in Australia. The GTR, with a 3.8-litre twin-turbo V6, was first unveiled at the end of 2007 and has not changed significantly in overall looks or basic powertrain. In Australia, its biggest success was winning the 2015 Bathurst 12-hour race, ahead of an Audi R8, an Aston Martin Vantage, a Bentley Continental, a Mercedes-Benz SLS, a Ferrari and a Lamborghini Gallardo. The latest T-Spec model produces 419 kilowatts, but it does not come cheap. Prices range from just under $194,000 to nearly $394,000 plus on-road costs. Its exterior looks are distinctive, as motoring journalist Paul Morell noted. I described it as a, looking like a very unhappy bulldog at the front. It's got that sort of downturned mouth. It doesn't look very happy. Fiat Chrysler Australia has confirmed that they will no longer sell Chryslers in this country. This is not surprising as the only vehicle they market here is the 300 sedan, a large passenger car with a certain gangster look, and Australia is the sole remaining right-hand drive market selling Chrysler vehicles. Chrysler Australia opened the Tonsley Park assembly plant in the suburbs of Adelaide in 1964 and with their Valiant models became one of the big three along with Holden and Ford, but it never reached the heights of the other two. The Hemi six-cylinder engine, made exclusively for Australia, became the most powerful six-cylinder produced domestically. Though it was based on a US design, it was never produced for North America. The 1970s saw the arrival of the Valiant Charger, which became Chrysler Australia's muscle car and is still considered one of the brand's most collectible vehicles. In Australia, the provision of electric vehicle infrastructure has focused on creating electric highways, charging points along our major regional motorways and roads. The difficulty in charging at your place of residence has also been highlighted as a stumbling block. Now the British government has outlined new legislation that will require the installation of electric vehicle charging points on all new buildings in England. This includes both residential properties and offices, and one charging point will have to be provided for every five parking spaces, and all charge points will have to be capable of smart charging. 
Last year, the UK government said it would inject the equivalent of 2.4 billion Australian dollars into increasing the rollout of charge points for EVs in homes, streets and motorways. About a third of households in Britain have no off-street parking, meaning charging points installed at workplaces or on the street will be increasingly important. One stumbling block to achieving public acceptance of more cycleways and a greater use of pushbikes has been the overzealous attitudes of some bike advocates, often delivered in a self-righteous tone. Harley-Davidson, who have started building e-bikes under the model name Serial One, have produced a light-hearted promotional video that presents some common ideas about the problems of extreme bike riding. They describe the video by saying, quote, Everyone knows the roadie racing around the neighbourhood in a spandex skin suit and shaved legs, shouting on your left at anyone who crosses his path. No one likes a roadie. Let Serial One e-bike guru show you how to resist the evil roadie ways and just enjoy the ride instead. The 8 minute 40 second video strives to be humorous but could probably make the same points in less than 3 minutes rather than looking like a poor Saturday Night Live sketch. And that has been the news. I've mentioned in the past my theory that you can often tell the age of a person particularly if they are male and particularly if they are a revhead, by the cars they love. The period of reverence for mechanised transport coincides with the time between puberty and late teens, perhaps early 20s. Not surprisingly, then, I have an almost mystical view of the late 60s and early 70s and the sectarian divide of Holden versus Ford, particularly with gladiatorial contests at Bathurst. It was a time when you did not buy your loyalty at a merchandising tent, but proudly wore the stain on your shirt from a weekend on the mountain. If it was signed by Brocky, it was a holy relic. Motoring journalist, commentator and author John Smales has been reminiscing on this time. G'day, John. Uh, David, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Sadly, one of the very significant characters of that time is probably only known or remembered by a tight fraternity of enthusiasts that just passed away. Who was that? Al Turner, who was the father of the greatest muscle car ever built in Australia, the Falcon GTHO. And you're right, his passing has kind of passed by without a lot of recognition, which kind of surprised me because Al Turner was pivotal in in that era that you spoke of, Mm. which in turn means that he was pivotal in the whole concept of V8 supercars in this country. He deserves more recognition. He was brought here by some almost American imperialism. Ha! That's a good way to put it. Uh, Bill Burke was an up-and-coming executive in the Ford Motor Company, and, and part of his ladder to success was to turn around the fortunes of Ford in Australia which was A, challenging Holden, which was dominant in this country, but B, not doing too well in its manufacturing activities. So Burke, big talking brush, brash American, was brought in to fix it. He, in turn, decided that he'd bring in Al Turner, who at the time was running Ford's drag racing program for the Mercury division. And uh, he brought in Al particularly to build a motorsport presence for Ford in this country, very successfully as it turned out. 
One of the things uh, we know, of course, was Harry Firth, known as the old fox. He was a race driver, team manager. I think Bill Tucky once wrote that he was uh, as cunning as an outhouse rat, rat, best remembered for masterminding the Holden dealer team. But he started with Ford. How did Turner get on with him? Not, not at all. There was room only for, for, for one outhouse rat. In, in that rat house, and uh, and that was going to be Al. You mentioned Alan Moffat. Now, you've challenged the popular opinion in some areas that Moffat took time to warm up and get into the groove, but Turner then hired him. Specifically, why? Al Turner recognised Alan Moffat not as a racing driver but as a development driver, which, in fact, was the case. Moffat was one of the best development drivers that Ford ever had on its production line. He did more kilometres around the Dearborn test track than anybody else known to humankind because that was in his DNA. For Alan, put him into a motor car and send him out to do a lap and to come back with certain parameters recorded was what Alan was all about. But his deal was that if he was going to test it, he was going to race it as well. So from day one, they made him the number one race driver for the Ford team in Australia, even though Bill Burke argued with Al Turner on that issue, saying that why can't we have an Australian as our racing driver and just keep Moffat, the Canadian, as our test driver? Turner, what was Lot 6? Lot 6 was the Skunk Works. Uh, Whilst Turner was a company man and a guy who'd turn up in a suit to work every day and would fill in all the films and do all the paperwork that a good card-carrying Ford senior executive would do, he recognised that there was no way known that the Falcon GDHO could be built totally under that regime. So he found a, 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 an industrial estate just across the road from the Ford Motor Company at Broadmeadows. Uh, one of those, they were divided into lots one, two, three, four, etc. He took over lot six, didn't put a sign on it, but hired a number of engineers, not the least of which were a few uh, redundant guys from the Repco Brabham program, strangely enough. Uh, he took them in-house there and built the Falcon GDHO pretty much as a skunk works program, even though it was officially signed off by Ford. But the whole reason for that was that there were a lot of people within Ford, a lot of executives, who wanted to put their fingerprints on a successful program and, and Turner recognised that they would most likely uh, not only be deleterious, uh, but would, would also get in the way of his dream of being the father of the Falcon GDHO. So what he used to do was that after he'd done his day's work across the Broadmeadow, he'd come across and work with the guys during the night. He was abso- absolutely committed to this program. And he would, any time a forward executive came anywhere near Lot 6, he'd turn out the lights and lock the gates so that they couldn't get in and they'd think everyone had gone home for the night. One night, a senior Ford executive came across and did exactly that. Al turned out the lights. It was only the next day he realised he'd locked out Jack Nasser, who, was, of course, went on to become the president of Ford in the world. But, but that's how serious he was about the, uh, the GDHO program. One of his first efforts was not a success uh, in taking on initially the great Norm Beachy. What happened there? Beachy built in the back of his workshop in Brunswick the fastest Monaro in the history of the world. 
Ford didn't think it was possible. They thought that this was just a, a backyard effort and was going to fail. But Beachy in 1970 went on to win the Australian Touring Car Championship. Naturally, Burke couldn't handle the disgrace as president of Ford in Australia. He said to Turner, build me one of those and make it a Ford. Now, that was where Turner made a major error because he thought what he'd do is build a Mustang. So all he'd do is get all the Mustang parts from Australia and put them into a Falcon in Australia because there was no point in bringing out a Mustang because they still didn't sell Mustangs in Australia. So it had to be a Ford Falcon that took on the Monaro. So Turner brought out all these Mustang bits and built the Super Falcon. Only two of them ever built. One went to, uh, uh, to Alan Moffat and uh, the other went to Pete Gagan. But, David, they were disastrous. They, they just didn't handle, they didn't work. Moffat refused to drive them ultimately. He and Turner had a stand-up argument uh, at Adelaide International Raceway until Moffat actually kidnapped uh, Al Turner. He had him in the passenger seat. There was a passenger seat inside the motor car. He put him in the, he had him in the seat. Suddenly he slammed the door shut and went for a high-speed drive around, around Adelaide International Raceway, at which stage Turner, white as a sheet, got out, had the car locked up, put on a trailer and sent back to Melbourne to do more work on it because he could now see that everything Moffat was talking about, this car being unsafe at any speed. To move on, uh, in 1970 and 71, Moffat won twice in an HO Series 2 and then an HO Series 3, uh, both times driving solo. Uh, and that was the pinnacle of, uh, of Turner's success in, in Australia. He was in the process of building the HO Series 4 when a motoring journalist, Evan Green, uh, published a story on 25 June 1972 the big supercar scare, where he said that uh, bullets on wheels were being built uh, for registration on the road, which, of course, under serious production regulations, they had to be. And within a week, within one week, David, the entire supercar industry in Australia came to a halt on the basis of that story. Politicians folded. Uh, car companies folded as well. And the GDHO program, five days after Evan's story appeared, folded as well. There are only ever four GDHO phase fours ever built in, in this country. Uh, and, of course, they never raced. Uh, well, and that was the end of it. You spoke to Turner, as you said, some four years ago. Did he remember his time in Australia fondly? Oh, very fondly, aggressively, fondly, uh, loved the place. His daughter still lives here. He loved his time in Australia. He, loved, he, he was only 30, when I say only, he was 37 when he came here, which in terms of, uh, of, of corporate uh, ladders climbing still made him a fairly, a fairly young man in terms of where he wanted to take his career. And he really, really appreciated the opportunity to, to strut his stuff in Australia. You know, in America, he was kind of one of many bees in the bottle. In Australia, he was the king, the, I can't say queen bee, he was the king bee. And uh, he was, uh, he, he therefore managed to really make his claim to, uh, to fame in this country. And that's been a lovely uh, reminiscence uh, off the cuff. I really appreciate your time and uh, a reflection on your commitment and involvement with the sport over many years. Thanks very much. 
You're listening to Overdrive. Luxury SUVs have become very popular over the last few years, and the car I'm driving this week is among the best of them, the Range Rover Velar. The Velar is every bit a Range Rover, yet looks like a luxury wagon with a coupe-style profile, more than an upright SUV. This is one stylish car. We have the 2.0-litre mid-hybrid diesel version that provides enough power and outstanding economy. It's smooth and comfortable to drive with the direct steering, and the occupants are cocooned from the outside noises. Inside, it's a luxury ambiance all the way with comfortable seats, well-laid-out digital instruments for the driver, and an intuitive and comprehensive central stack with twin touchscreens. Rear seat room is a little tight, but there's ample boot space for luggage, etc. While it's Range Rover capable, the most adventurous driving a Velar will usually do is trips to the snowfields and gravel driveway at the weekend retreat. Yes, it's designed as an urban SUV and fits the description well. It's a delight to drive around town. Our car is priced from $96,900 plus the fitted options, taking that to be a bit over $110,000 plus usual costs. I'm Brianna Fraser. You're listening to Overdrive. The Tiguan first came out in 2006 and it has only had one major overhaul, but it's had quite a few upgrades. Paul Morell is the founder of SeniorDriverOz.com, a great website. G'day, Paul. Hey, David. Would you consider the Volkswagen brand in general, and perhaps the Tiguan, a little bit more upmarket than your typical SUV, mid-size SUV? It sits pretty much surprisingly in the middle of the, the market. Like all these things, we seem to have so much choice until you actually start trying to define exactly what you're looking for. And all of a sudden, it's very hard to compare like with like, and you get very quickly down to a shorter list of cars. It's quite sizable on the outside. It looks, and I guess it can't have grown greatly with only one major overhaul, but certainly a number of makeovers. And I think that maybe that's really interior stuff, isn't it? There's the screens and that now are much more modern. Along with all of these things, the updates pretty much are going to be the tech upgrades. The body hasn't changed to any major extent, but internally, of course, it gets all sorts of changes to keep it current with current technology. Did you enjoy driving it? They actually have three grades of cars. So you have the Life, which is the entry level, the Elegance, which is the next one up, and then, of course, the R-Line, which is the top of the range. In amongst all of that, just to confuse things further, there are, in fact, four different engines, and they have both petrol and diesel. So you get very confused very quickly. I found the 162 had a good noise to it and picked up rather well, 162 kilowatts. It's pretty good. But you pay for these things. This is the point. The new Tiguan, I guess, with the as you'd expect these days, the prices have gone up. They've gone up almost, well, in some cases, as much as $4,700 over the outgoing model. So there's a fair penalty being applied at the purchase price. And it's interesting that as I was saying to you before, it's it's quite an exercise to compare like with like because there are cheaper SUVs. It's called a midsize SUV, but as you say, it's getting quite large. There are cheaper SUVs in that category. And then, of course, you start to compare it with other with other cars, the other vehicles in the category, most of which are the Europeans. And I'm just going to look at this. We've got Audi, BMW, Mercedes-Benz, Alfa Romeo, Land Rover, Discovery, Evoque. And then I'm going to throw in amongst the Europeans the Genesis GV70 and the Lexus, of course, neither of which is European, but they're competing up there. They're all more expensive. There's a 16 in a category above $60,000. That's where the cutoff points used to be. There are a large number of vehicles, and 
they get over $60,000, whereas the Tiguan from the front-wheel drive petrol engine car, which starts at about $40,000, give or take, goes up as far as $56,000 for the top of the range. So it's an interesting price range. It starts to look like good value. It's a European SUV priced really down with, and I'm not, I shouldn't say down with, but priced in amongst the, the Japanese, the Korean. That's sort of where it has to fight its battles. So it's an interesting exercise. Do you find that the actual controls, the operation, have certain elements of clarity yet have their own distinctiveness, their own idiosyncrasies that, to my mind, makes it a bit of a struggle? I think we've got to do a whole segment on this. When you get a new car, take a long time to sit down and learn how to do the things before you get out on the road and start trying to guess your way through. There's no consistency in controls from one brand to another. And as you say, I mean, most of the Europeans still have the indicator wand on the left and other things on the right. So if you happen to own two cars, or as you and I are doing, get out of one car into another on a regular basis, you're constantly turning the wipers on when you want to indicate. Um, and the Volkswagen is like that. You mentioned turning the blinkers on. I was driving a Volkswagen, a little caddy, the new caddy, and I was playing a podcast. I like to listen to a podcast as I go, but you set it up beforehand. Mm. You make sure it's before you're going. But then I went to touch the volume thing and I hit something and I couldn't get back. I had to stop. I had to get off a motorway and, and pay a toll to get back <laughs> on. Yeah. In fairness, Volkswagen had to pay a toll to get back on, <laughs> which I thought was only justice. Absolutely apt. <laughs> I will say about the Volkswagen is the manual was set out quite clearly, although I thought it took me as being an absolute idiot because it had an arrow down to the three pedals and gave me a definition <laughs> of what each of the pedals was, and, and then for an automatic, just two. I think for millennials, you do have to explain to them what a clutch pedal would be. <laughs> <laughs> there were some strange things with the Volkswagen. I must admit, uh, the R-Line, for example, which is the of the range and the most expensive, all of a sudden in the R-Line, the, uh, the hands-free tailgate is no longer hands-free. Uh, it's still electric and auto, but you don't have that wonderful, um, wonderful hands-free thing that you get in the lesser level. So there are some strange decisions being made along the way, and it takes some time to work. I mean, with, with so many models and so many different variants and so many different engines, it takes a, an awfully long time to go through it and try and compare the differences and work out what's what with each one of them. Um, another one that's worth mentioning is that the uh, the diesel is the first time the Tiguan's had a diesel engine, and we know that Australians have adopted particularly diesel engines in SUVs. The Tiguan hasn't had a diesel engine apart from in the allspace, which is a different category, hasn't had a, a diesel engine since 2018. So Volkswagen dealers will be really happy to be able to offer that, I'm sure. Okay, Paul, thanks for that. Let's come back and talk a little bit about the Nissan GTR. You're listening to Overdrive. Nissan had maintained its sporty image that it had set probably back in the 70s in rallying, but it continued with its performance cars, even while it uh, dropped most of its normal sedans, its sports cars. And there was the 370Z, but also the very, very hot GTR. Well, they've said that this latest upgrade will be the last of the range. Paul, are you going to miss it? Very much so, David. Not that I could ever afford one, but yes, I'm still going to miss it. The fact that it's on, that it was available. 
quite a spectacular car and a real showcase for Japanese technology. They really hit their peak in image in 2015 when they won the Bathurst 12-hour race here in Australia. And upset a whole lot of bogans at the same time. And it deserved to be in that company as well. The point is that this car is really quite spectacular. The Japanese, if you like, dipped their toe in the water with things like the Toyota 2000 GT or perhaps some of the Prince Skylines that they, that they built. I mean, they were nice things. But when they finally got to the Honda NSX and the Nissan GTR, they really hit the peaks, as you say. Quite amazing cars. The NSX, what a lovely car that was. Mm. I remember taking it up at the old tourist road uh, north of Sydney, and it was a delight. And it looked like a Ferrari, really, didn't it? I mean, well, it, did. it was Ferrari-ish. It was a Ferrari without the idiosyncrasies in many ways. You mean it was a joy to drive? <laughs> exactly. And it, and it actually went got where you wanted to go. <laughs> we shouldn't denigrate Ferrari too much, but... They have improved. Yeah, of course they have. The GTR V6 twin turbo, mm. it reminded me always of having the interior and that, the little three dials up on the, on the dashboard, over the centre of the dashboard, angled towards the driver. And it had that steering wheel that went up and down, but it took the dashboard with it as well, mm. the dials and that with it as well. So yeah. you didn't move the steering wheel to cover the, the dials if you wanted a different position. It, exactly. You know, it had that element of oft-used race bread about it. It sounded like it and it felt like it. It was just, it was just a lovely thing to drive. And, uh, I mean, it, it could scare the living daylights out of you if, you if you didn't treat it with due respect. What does the top-of-the-line one cost? Nearly $400,000 plus on-road costs. The Nismo SV, $393,800 plus on-road costs, of course. Yeah. There goes $400,000 out of your bank account very quickly. 400 plus. Must make it a very, very selective market. And I mean, the cheapies, inverted commas, is about $200,000, isn't it? Mm. I understand that, of course, that it's got things like launch control, but if you do more than three of them, you've got to change the oil in the gearbox. <laughs> Nissan is keeping it. I presume they might well go for something electric in the future, but Nissan has certainly here in Australia, has SUVs or extremely hot, expensive sports cars. Mm. It's an interesting hero car to a totally different part of the rest of the fleet. It always looked good in the showroom, but when you think about it, the people who would be going into a Nissan showroom to look at a GTR really wouldn't be in the market for a Leaf, I wouldn't imagine. <laughs> yes, they're one sedan, all electric. <laughs> as a historically significant vehicle. Many of these cars, they sort of get, they are bought and then they put away and, and wrapped in cotton wool that don't really get used very often. I can't imagine why you would do that with the GTR, but I guess there are people who will have done that. I don't know. I mean, it's, it is a significant motor car. The standard rule of thumb is that the, the first model and the last model are the ones that are most collectible, but I don't know if that will apply here. I don't, I honestly don't know. I, I really can't predict how it will pan out as a collector car. We would be more than happy to give them a fling in their final format, I'm sure, Paul. Mm. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, David. And that's Paul Morell, who is the founder and uh, chief writer for the uh, website, seeingyourdriveroz.com. You're listening to Overdrive. 
Four-wheel drive enthusiasts often add a host of accessories to their four-wheel drive to make the vehicle more suitable for their own adventures. Ford has come up with a version of its popular Everest four-wheel drive called the Base Camp that adds some common accessories as factory fitted. These include a black nudge bar, LED light bar, snorkel, black roof mounted carry bars and roof platform, sunseeker awning and a 3000 kilo tow bar. The base camp version is limited to 450 vehicles and offers some $6,000 worth of accessories for around $2,200 additional price. Buyers can choose from the 5 cylinder 3.2 litre engine with 143 kilowatts and 470 newton metres or the newer 2 litre 4 cylinder by turbo engine producing 157 kilowatts and 500 newton metres. There is a slight difference in the towing capacity between them. With a the new Ranger coming early next year, the new Everest won't be far behind, and the current model is showing its age a little bit, but it's still a good, true four-wheel drive. Pricing is reasonable starting from 64990 with a recommended driveway price. I'm Rob Fraser. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to John Smales, Paul Morell, Brianna Fraser, Rob Fraser and Paul Just for their help with this program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au All previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. Or there's our Facebook site, Overdrive City Driven Media. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.